God, I thank you, Father, for the chance to come before you, God. And Father, what a blessing it is to sing your praise. And Lord, as we just sing these songs to you, Father, as we contemplate, Lord, all that you've done for us, God, how much you really do love us, God. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we dig through your word, Lord, that even in these hard uh, chapters of Ezekiel, Lord, even when we're looking at you telling your people that you are not happy with them because of their idolatry, God. Lord, that even in those things, even in the things that we read tonight, Lord, that we would see your love and your mercy and your grace. Father, that you would even bother to continue to reach out, God, just shows your grace and mercy. And so, Father, as we read tonight, I pray, Father, that you would open our ears, open our eyes. God, put in us, Lord, the things that you want to show us, Holy Spirit. Lord, we never want to come to your word uh, for some historical examination or for just, you know, some knowledge about what happened to the people of Israel and, and then just walk away from it and think that there's not something here for us. But God, we want to come to your word and know that it's living and it's alive and it's fresh, God, and, and that you have words that you want to speak to us through this, God. And so, Father, I pray, would you do that tonight, God? In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, you guys, we're going to begin looking at this kind of the history of Judah's rebellion and corruption. And we've been kind of looking at that all along, haven't we? But tonight, we're going to kind of take really a pretty in-depth look. So God has been saying through Ezekiel a lot of different things, and he's been talking kind of a big broad brush or a 10,000 foot view of like, you've been in idolatry, you've done these things. Well, tonight in chapter 20, specifically where we're going to be looking, he's going to literally go from Egypt clear up to modern day, and he's going to lay out all the ways that they have been walking against his statutes. This is literally the emphasis of what we're going to read over the next four chapters. Chapter 20 through 24 is kind of God laying it out, laying it out really, really uh, in depth. So tonight, with examining chapter 20, I want to look at this, and this is the things that we're going to be seeing, God's sovereignty and his mercy. And I want to say something, you guys. When we look at who God is, we need to keep this in mind. You guys know that God is love. God doesn't love you. God is love. He is. God is mercy. God is justice. So there's, you can't separate one from the other. God doesn't come and lay the, you know, that pound or the hammer down without love and mercy and grace. He also doesn't lay down grace and mercy and, and all that without justice. He does it all to together, and I don't know about you, but I, I can't really get my head around that completely. Can you? Because how many times when you were a kid, and say your mom or your dad, they came and they punished you, did you think your mom or dad loved you in that moment? No, I didn't. I didn't, right? Now, as an adult and as a parent myself, I know that my parents loved me, that they loved me so much that they were willing to punish me, to give me some direction, in my life. But as a kid, you don't get that. Well, now, how much more, you guys, 
Is it for us when we're not even talking about a human parent that may, we could look at their, their punishment and say, man, maybe in that moment they were really angry and it doesn't mean they didn't love us, but maybe they were lacking a little bit. Well, not with God. God is absolute love. God is absolute mercy. God is absolute justice. And so when we're reading these things tonight, you guys, I want us to see his sovereignty and his mercy in spite of humanity's constant failure, specifically his people. I want us to see that his love and desire for us is to follow him. And that seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? But if, if it was that obvious and that easy, then why would we need his justice to keep bringing us back to him, right? Why would we need him to be like, no, for real, stop it, come this way, right? We need that because we struggle to follow him. I also want us to look at the fact and, and kind of get from this, this over, his overall response to us. I want us to see that, man, he wants to move on our behalf. He wants to like say, man, I, I want our relationship to be close and tight, right? But it requires something of us. It requires something of us. As Christians in the day to, as we stand right now, what does it require first? Well, if you want to be called a Christian, it requires you to accept the work that Christ did on the cross, right? That's the first thing that brings us into right relationship. But the truth is, is that even though a lot of times we're not necessarily willing to follow him the way we should, and we want to go our own direction, I want you to see that his desire is to move on our behalf in spite of us. He did it on the cross through Christ, but he does it in our everyday lives, you guys. I'm bringing all that up because this is a hard chapter. You've heard me say that how many times in Ezekiel? We've got more ahead, <laughs> right? It's just a hard book, but I need us to, to keep our head around the fact that, man, we see a lot of God's justice in this book, but we cannot separate that from his grace and mercy and love. We cannot. So let's get going here. Verse one says this. It came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and set before me. And then the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Then make known to them the abominations of their fathers. So Ezekiel starts by giving us a very specific date stamp. Did you notice that right in the beginning? He says, in the seventh year, the fifth month, the 10th day. That is extremely specific. The reason that's so cool is that we know what that day is. You guys want to know what day it is? 14 August, 591 BC. It's that day. The reason I bring that up, most often critics of the Bible will say like, well, I mean, prophecies were just so broad brush and they're just so random and, you know, and, and I mean, how can we really know that that is exactly what they mean? Which tells you a couple things. Number one, they've never read the Bible. And then number two, even if they have read the Bible, they obviously didn't catch on to the fact that this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before these things are going to happen. If we read Isaiah, we, you know, it doesn't take much reading of Isaiah to see the very specific things that he was saying about what the Messiah was going to do. And we see very specifically 
in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus fulfilled all of it, right? We're going to read more of that in the, next, in the coming weeks with the triumphal entry, right? Here we see Ezekiel, this priest that's just like saying, man, when I write this down, I'm going to be specific. It's great. It's awesome because it gives us these date stamps, which makes it hard for anyone, any critic of the Bible to look and be like, well, this was probably written like way after everything went down. And it's like, no, this is, he, he put a date stamp right in the middle of it. And this is not his first date stamp. Do you guys remember that? This is about 11 months after the last major date stamp that we had, that we've been given in chapter eight, verse one. And if you remember, you guys, this isn't the first time the elders have showed up at his doorstep either. We saw that in chapter eight, verse one, and we saw it again in chapter 14, verse one. And what has God said to the elders every time they've come? Repent. Get yourselves right. The fact that they keep coming back is interesting because they keep coming back because it's tradition. It's what you did. When the, when the prophet of the Lord was in your, in your presence, you would listen to him or at least give him some level of listening, right? And we looked all through the kings where they were like, you know, certain kings would not want to hear certain prophets because they're like, I don't like it. He tickle my ear. Why? Because God was actually speaking through that real guy and they didn't want to hear what the truth was. And it's the same thing here, you guys. They keep coming back and it's God is basically saying to their inquiries, I am not hearing you. I ain't hearing your noise. I ain't hearing it. And he basically goes to Ezekiel and he's like, will you judge them? Will you judge them? Ezekiel like, no, for real. Will you judge them? Because guess what? I want you to think of it like this. God is basically going to those people and putting his hand in their face and saying like, don't talk to me. I don't want to hear it. Like Ezekiel, you deal with it. I don't want to give them a satisfaction of an answer. That's essentially what God's saying to them. How do we get here, you guys? Think about that. The elders, those people in the culture that were supposed to be the ones that had the wisdom. The elders, the ones that were leading this group. And where did they lead them to? Into exile. Why? Because they wouldn't listen to God. You guys, we have a pretty young congregation. Do you know that? Can I say something to you? I remember being your age. You're not far from 40. You're really not. Isn't that encouraging? Then you'll be old and decrepit. No, <laughs> my point is, you guys, it doesn't take long before people start looking at you in their 20s and you're like, wait, wait, well, well, I'm, I'm the same age you are. And then you're like, no, you're not, old man. You know what I mean? We become elders before we're ready to be elders. And then I look to Steve and Steve's like, wait, what happened? Right? We're, it happens quicker than we expect. But the reality is, you guys, if we're following God, I don't care what your age is, you can have the wisdom that the Lord allows you to have. You can be an elder in spite of your age. And what does that mean? It doesn't always mean age. It talks, it's talking from a biblical, from a spiritual perspective. How do you want to be an elder? You want to press into God now. You want to be in relationship with the Lord now. You want to dig deep with the Lord and grow in a relationship with him so that when other people come and talk to you, they're like, man, that guy's got wisdom. That girl 
really spoke wisdom to me. Do you understand? That's what Ezekiel was doing. Now, here's the problem, you guys. These elders, in this case, literally old men, were coming. But the reality is, and, this, and we know this because of God's continued response to them, they did not want at all to really care or, or change the things that Ezekiel was telling them to change. They were only doing it because it was the ritual thing to do. That's what you did. And you guys, if we do that to God, I don't know where that line is where God finally says like, I'm done. I'm done talking to you right now until you get right with me. I don't know where that line is, but personally, I don't know about y'all, I don't want to find the line either, right? I want to stay tight with him. I want to have a heart that's soft before him that says, man, Lord, you know how messed up this guy is. You know how messed up my heart is. And so Father, would you, as you reveal those things to me, like I don't want to be like, yeah, whatever, I don't care and keep walking away. I want to hear that, take it in and say, Lord, forgive me and help me to repent. Help me to walk away from this. And so he asks Ezekiel, he's like, man, you judge him. You judge him. And then God tells him like, hey, remind them of how they have continually walked throughout the generations towards me. And so that's what we're going to start doing. You ready? Verse five says this. And I want you to notice something. God basically just said, talk to the hand. But then right after that, he continues to talk through Ezekiel. Do you notice that? Verse five says, say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I raised my hand in an oath to them saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt and into a land that I searched out for them. Flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, each of you, Throw away the abominations which are his eyes, or which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But Catch this, you guys. I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. You guys, God is saying, look, I chose you guys. I chose you. I raised my hand, my right hand of power in an oath I raise my hand and listen, we swear to God, right? Sometimes, which the Bible tells us not to do, but don't we do that? When you, when you swear on a Bible in court, if any of you guys have ever been to court or been on a jury duty, hopefully you've been on jury duty and not in court, right? <laughs> but either way, you swear on a Bible and you say like, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God, like, right? You're saying like, man, I'm, I had a little practice. No, I'm kidding. I've been on jury duty. But the point I'm making is you guys, is that here is God, not swearing to himself even. He's like, I don't need to swear to anything because I am God. If God raises his right hand in an oath, can you guarantee that it's actually going to be done? Yeah. 
Think about that the next time that the enemy comes and lies to you and tells you that your sin is too great. That when you've done that the millionth time. He swore an oath on the cross. And the oath was is that if you accept what he did, you're forgiven. Remember that. So God did this. And what did he ask of the people? Put away your idolatry and your abominations. And they didn't do it. They didn't do it. And he was angry with them while they were in Egypt. But I want you guys to see this. In verse 9, it says, but I acted. Why? For my name's sake. He acted because he was saying this. I want the Gentiles to know that I'm God too. Like I've told you I'm your God. I've swore an oath to you, Israelites, that I'm your God and you're screwing it all up. And I want to kind of just go blink and squash you like a little buggy right now because you're making me mad. But I'm not gonna do that. Why? Because I want everyone to know that I'm God. Do you see, even here, God's grace, not just for the Jews, but for us, you guys. He's making it clear here in the Old Testament that I love this whole world. All of my creation I love, not just these people. But he does have a special place in his heart for the Israelites. And it's awesome because it's not like they deserve it. It's not like we deserve it, right? And so he rescued them from Egypt, even though they didn't deserve it. Let's keep reading verse 10. Therefore, I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes, my laws, right? And showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does, this is the second time he says it, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. But I acted for what? My namesake. That it should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. So I also raised my hand in an oath to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands, because they despised my judgments and did not walk in my statutes, but profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them from destruction. I did not make an end of them in the wilderness, but I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, keep my judgments and do them. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You guys, here God is laying it out again, like, man, I brought you out of Egypt, brought you into the wilderness, gave you the law through Moses, right? That's where we get the 10 commandments, Exodus chapter 20. He explained that here is the standard of behavior that I want you to follow. Now, are they ever going to do that perfectly? No. Did he expect them to do it in complete perfection? No, he didn't. But what he did expect is that they would do it full of heart and passion to know him more, 
right? That he had an expectation from them, the same expectation he has of us, not for perfection, right? It's obvious God doesn't expect perfection because if he did, he would have never sent Jesus. He sent Jesus because he realizes we can't walk in perfection. He had the sacrificial system that was set up long, long ago that these people were living under. Why? Because he knew you cannot live in perfection. He's not expecting something that is beyond us. What he's expecting is a relationship with us. And you guys hear he's saying like, man, I gave you a standard of behavior. And that standard of behavior that I gave you, if you actually try to walk that out, it brings life to you. It brings life to you. And I want to stop for a second because I, I think there's plenty here for us to look at. Let's just take the easy ones. What about lying? Let's just take an easy one. Is lying life-giving? I'm not asking anybody to raise their hands, but if I don't think anybody here could raise their hand and say, I've never lied. And then I'd be like, you're lying. <laughs> right? We've all lied. Does it bring life? Heck no, it doesn't bring life. It brings death. It brings death in so many ways because A, God loves us so much that for a Christian, we will get caught in the lie. And B, we walk around in absolute misery trying to figure out and remember, man, what did I say? And oh no. And then like, oh, what if that person finds out? And, oh, and we're all worked up. And then at the end of it, it explodes in our face and we have to deal with the repercussions of it anyway. And it would have been so much easier to just be honest right up front, wouldn't it have been? That's just one thing. Think about the Ten Commandments. Think about them. Think about how many you've broken. Right? Like we're all, I mean, hopefully we're all here. We're like, man, I've never murdered. Check. Got that one. But have you ever been so angry that you wanted to kill somebody? I have. You've murdered. <laughs> right? Have you ever lost it in your heart? You've committed adultery. We've, we've done so many things, you guys. And none of it is life-giving. And so what God is saying here to them is like, man, what I laid out for you is for your good. It's for, your, it's for a better life for you if you follow it. The Sabbath. You guys, this might sound harsh and it might sound like I'm being a little bit judgmental as a pastor and please understand I'm really not, but do you understand what Sunday worship is for? You understand what this is for? You guys do, because you're here. <laughs> what about those that aren't? I think sometimes, you guys, we have missed the point. We've made it into this legalistic things, which sometimes I fully agree that, man, I've been in plenty of churches that are that way and I pray long and hard that I never come off that way because it's not about legalism. But I also have to say this, Sabbath, rest, time away to say, Lord, today my focus is you and only you. Mm -hmm. Today, Lord, my focus is to serve you, to love you, to spend time with your people. It's important, you guys. It's important. And God actually says, man, keep my Sabbath holy. And so I'm not intending any legalism, but I'm asking each one of us, like, do we look at this time here, church, whenever we can get to it, do we look at it as important, number one? Number two, do we take it for granted? I do. I have in the past. I don't so much anymore because I got to teach, right? Like, I kind of got to be here, but like, and I don't take that for granted. It's a, it's a privilege for me to be able to do this. Like, God could take that away in two seconds, Right? But man, 
what privilege I don't ever want to take for granted is this privilege of being able to sit in the pews. Last Sunday, when I didn't have to teach you guys, it felt so weird to not teach, but it also felt so refreshing to be part of the congregation and be, and be fed into by someone else's speaking. You understand? By like someone else giving the word. And you guys, we should never take that for granted. We should never take the granted, for granted the time that we have one with another because we don't know what tomorrow might bring. And so God says here, man, like, walk in my statutes, keep my judgments, hallow, keep my Sabbath holy. What happens at the end of this? God continues to bless him for his namesake. Why? Because he doesn't want the Gentiles to look and not know that he's not God. What an interesting twist to all this. Because think about this. Ezekiel is talking to his Israelite elders that were part of the tribe that are where? In Babylon, in Gentile country. And Ezekiel's like, man, you know what? God keeps doing these things to you and keeps pouring out blessing on you in spite of you. Why? So that these Babylonians and the Egyptians and every other Gentile race can know that he's God too. And they're like, wait, what? I thought it was our guy. I thought he was our God. I thought he was on our side. And he's like, he is. You're not on his side though because you're obviously not following or listening to anything he's saying. But yet he still loves you so much. It's insane, you guys. Verse 21. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to observe my judgments, which if a man does, again, he shall live by them. But they profane my Sabbaths. And then I said, I would pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the wilderness. How many generations are we talking about here, you guys? How many generations? At least three, right? Two or three. So if they're ones that came out of Egypt, maybe at another generation, they lived 40 years in there. So say that generation goes, the next generation died. We know that, right? Except for uh, Joshua and Caleb. Those are the only two that made it out from all the people that were in the wilderness. So the next, so it's like two or three generations now that he's there. And what happened? Guys, we read through Joshua, didn't we? Did they do great? Sometimes. Not all the time. What happened by the end of Joshua? Turmoil. We went through the book of Judges. What was happening then? Absolute chaos. So we're reading, we've already read all the stuff that God's going through here in this history lesson. He's like, dude, go back and read the Judges. Go back and read Joshua. Go back and read Exodus. You guys have jacked up over and over and over again. And here you are asking me for an answer with a heart that says, I don't really want an answer, God. I want to keep doing what I want to do. Where were we? Verse 22. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my namesake, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. Also, I raised my hand in an oath to those in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the Gentiles and disperse them throughout the countries. You guys notice the change over there? Because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbath, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. Therefore, I also gave them up to statutes that were not good and judgments by which they could not live. 
And I pronounced them unclean because of their ritual gifts in that they caused all their firstborns to pass through the fire that I might make them desolate and that they may know that I am the Lord. So God says, man, while you're in the wilderness, you got worse, not better. The idolatry and the abominations only grew. They were putting their children into the burning hands of Moloch. We've talked all about that guy, right? He had basically said, man, I'm, I'm giving you over to the things you keep seeking out. Basically, verse 25, where he says, I also gave them up to the statutes that were not good. Where were they at? They were in Babylon. What were some of the gods of the, the small G gods, the idols they worshiped? Babylonian. Do you understand? He's saying like, you want to worship these idols so bad? That's fine. I'm going to put you under the people that created them. You want this so, so bad? Have at it. You guys, this is nothing new. God is doing the same thing today, isn't he? Flip over with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter one. Starting in verse 20. says this. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You guys, here's Paul writing in the book of Romans and saying like, man, this has been throughout history and it continues. And I think we can point to things today where we look and we're like, man, we have, we're worshiping the created instead of the creator. Believe in science. Hey, science is good. God's given us wisdom. We've learned a lot, right? I'm not dissing it, but I'm saying I don't believe in science. I believe in God. I believe that God gave us brains. And so some of the science that we're learning is good. But I don't believe in it. Do you understand? Like when we look at the world today, nothing has changed. And what happens at the end result of that? If you start worshiping the created instead of the creator, at some point, you guys, God gives people over to that. At some point. Now listen, I firmly believe that once you're saved, God has saved you, that you're going to walk that out. You're going to walk out your salvation. You're going to work it out with fear and trembling, right? So I don't know where that line is, and I don't even know what that looks like. And I'm, I'm up here telling you, I don't know is the answer I've got for that. But again, I go back to this. I don't ever want to find out or test to find out where that line is. I was walking through some, some stuff in my life, some anger issues and things like that from things in my past. And I went to my pastor one day in Idaho and I said to him, I was like, man, I, I don't even know if I'm still saved because, you know, I'm still I'm just so angry. I'm so full of bitterness. And I, 
I can't forgive. And I see God's word says, man, like if I can't forgive, then he won't forgive me. And I was just so stressed out because I'm like, does that mean he won't forgive me for, for the things I'm angry about? Or does that mean he won't forgive me at all? Like I'm going to go to hell? Or what does that mean? And I was trying to work all that out. And I got the most comforting piece of information I've ever received in my life. And I'm going to tell you guys this. If you're worried about whether or not God's forgiven you, it's a sure sign God's forgiven you. What this is speaking of and what these elders were doing was literally going because they just thought, well, that's what you have to do. We see this in the modern day. People that say, oh, I went to church last Easter and so I'll go again this Easter. That means I'm going to heaven. It doesn't mean that. That's what these elders were doing. I'm coming to you, prophet, because that's what I'm supposed to do, but I don't want to hear what you have to say and I don't really care. And I'm just checking the block and then I'm going to walk away and not do it again for a long time. Do you see the difference, you guys? Verse 27. says this, Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, In this too, your fathers have blasphemed me by being unfaithful to me. When I brought them into the land concerning which I had raised my hand in an oath to give them, and they saw all the high hills and all the thick trees. There they offered their sacrifices and provoked me with their offerings. There they also sent up their sweet aromas and poured out their drink offerings. And then I said to them, what is this high place to which you go? So it is called Bama to this day. And Bama literally means high place. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, are you defiling yourselves in the manner of your fathers and committing harlotry according to their abominations? For when you offer your gifts and make your sons pass through the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols, even to this day. So shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What you have in your mind shall never be when you say we will be like the Gentiles, like the families in other countries serving wood and stone. You guys, God moves into the time that they were in the promised land and things continue to go downhill. The people continue to seek their flesh and idolatry. That's all they keep looking to. You guys, these high places, we've talked all about it, right? Like these high places, they would go up and they would have sex. They would go up and they would sacrifice their babies. They would go up and they would do all sorts of abominable things, horrible things. And remember where should have they have gone? To the, to the tabernacle that was set up this whole time. The whole time, you guys, through the book of Judges, I think the place where the tabernacle was was only mentioned once, maybe twice in the whole book. And both times, it wasn't really mentioned for them to come back and be like, oh God, forgive us. It was more of a time to come back and be like, well, this is where we have to go to kind of like figure out what God wants from us. But they really didn't want to deal with it correctly. Because if they were dealing with it correctly, it would have involved what? Repentance. You guys, the people were at best paying lip service to God. God says to the elders that were sitting before Ezekiel, I am not going to listen to you. I'm not going to hear you because you're paying lip service to me by coming to Ezekiel and acting as though you really want to hear what I have to say, but 
You don't. You don't. You want to continue to do what you want to do. You don't want to really follow after me. That's what God's saying. You have no desire to change your life. But I want to say this. God, you guys, makes this amazing and sovereign statement in verse 32. That even though his chosen people would rather go and live like the Gentiles, what did he say? I'm not ever going to let that happen. That is awesome. And it should terrify them. Think about that. God is bigger than every, every one of us. He's our creator. What does that mean when he says that he's not going to let it happen? What does that mean? Think about it. When he told the generation that was in the wilderness that wasn't following after him, hey, you guys, you're not going to enter into the promised land. I'm not going to let it happen. What happened? They died. And they didn't even die a quick death. They lived out their life and then died in the wilderness. Why? Because they chose not to follow after God. You guys, it's a good thing when God says, I'm not going to let something happen in your life. It's a good thing. But again, I don't want him to have to say that to us. I want him to have to say instead, man, it's good to see you again today. I'm glad we can talk again. Let me share something from my word for you today. Man, let's get together and have breakfast with our, with our fellow brothers and sisters so the Lord can speak to us in, through that, right? Like, let's do these things. Let's be about these things so that we don't get to the point like these elders were, where we're showing up to church just to check a block and walk away and then wondering why God's not saying anything to us. You guys, what was he saying to the, gen, to the Jews? He's saying, you can try all you want to look like the world around you, but you will never be comfortable in the world around you. Christian, you shouldn't be comfortable in the world around you. God has given us his Holy Spirit to bring conviction into our hearts. Why? To teach us that, that feeling of like, man, this is uncomfortable whenever I'm trying to live like the world. And we all do it, don't we? There's nobody here that can look and be like, nah, that's not me. I think every believer should be comforted by the fact that God loves us enough that he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us to give us that conviction. Also, I think it should give us the fear of the Lord enough to say, man, if I've got areas of my life that I'm living just like the world around me, Lord, help me to repent and move on from that right? And that's a lifelong process of sanctification. That doesn't happen overnight. And so you guys, when we read about this constant blatant sin in the lives of Israel, I think personally it should give us pause. And I pray that for everyone here that it doesn't describe any of our lives. But I do know this. We're all sinful. I know that. There's none of us here that are righteous enough to get to heaven on our own. We all need Jesus. There's no one that could stand up here and be like, man, I'm nailing it perfect, right? No. If you're here tonight and you know that you have blatant or unrepentant sin in your life, it's easy to fix, you guys. Let's pray, you guys. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.